You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, this is JR. I've got a terrible cold, but fortunately I don't have to talk for an hour or so with Simon and Matt and the others this week about anything in particular, because on Sunday I was at the Regenerations uh, convention in Swansea, and uh, I took the opportunity to grab a few short interviews with some of the movers and shakers, rather than some of the talent. So you'll be hearing from Carrie Woodward, who organises the thing, and he's a very interesting fellow, and you'll learn about how a convention is run in Swansea. Um, you'll also be hearing from the editors of Doctor Who magazine, the chairman of Big Finish, uh, the chap behind a new uh, internet video series called Anorax, and... Finally, you'll also be hearing from Gary Russell, who was there, who's talking about what he's been up to lately. Uh, and then, at the end of the podcast, after the music, if you keep listening, you'll also get another little surprise from Simon. Uh, and we will be back either next week or the week after to explain what that's all about. Meanwhile, in the meantime, enjoy. <laughs> Right, I'm sitting here with Carrie Woodward, who is the organiser of the Regenerations event here in Swansea. And you've been doing this for how long have you been doing this? Uh, 13 years, but not straight 13 years. Uh, I've had a couple of breaks. 2008, I didn't do one. Uh, we have had a break from 2013 until now. Well, so it's not I, straightforward. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, 2013, I think you actually said that that was going to be your last ever one, didn't you? It absolutely was. I was 50, the show was 50, it was just seemed the right time to stop. I'd run 10 events up until that stage. Um, but literally, I attended another event about a year later, and uh, over the weekend, I would say 200 people approached me and said, look, we really miss it, September is an ideal time, we'd really like you to do it again, and essentially, in the end, I just lost my temper and said, right, I'll bring it back September 2016, and here we are. Brilliant. And there's going to be one next year as well, is that right? Uh, I haven't decided yet. Oh, okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. In that case, I'm not getting an exclusive here, am I? I'm afraid not, no. <laughs> there's a lot of people pressurising me, and I've even had a complaint right at the beginning yesterday that said there's nothing in the pack about next year. Uh, but no, it's unlikely for next year, to be honest with you. Right, that's fair uh, enough. But we'll have to wait and see. Right, well, that brings me to the story of this thing, because you look at the guest list... Mm. And it's in a nice hotel, and it's all really nicely organised, and this is the second time I've come up and seen a bit of this thing, and this is a really nicely, professionally put together package, but really, when it comes down to it, and this is the reason why people like this so much, it's relatively small and intimate, and it kind of feels like a family affair as well, Mm. and really, this is all your work. How did it start? Right, well, I'm glad you said all of that, because it's exactly what I've been going for, is that sort of family feel, friendly, the stewards are friendly. Where it all started, uh, in 2004, 
Uh, I attended a, a convention in the Crescent Theatre in Birmingham. It hadn't been particularly well advertised, so it wasn't well attended. There were only about 30 of us in the audience. Wow. So I ended up asking quite a lot of the questions just to keep it flowing. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, everyone was still interested. And two of the actors on stage at the time were Terry Malloy and Annika Wills. So at the conclusion of the event, they signalled to come up for a drink in the upstairs bar in the Crescent Theatre. So I went up and had a drink, and we were just talking about various things. They realised I'm a big Doctor Who fan. And they said, well, why don't you organise a convention, and we'll come as your first guest? I had never thought about running a convention before. Went away and thought about it, and the panopticons had ended. So yeah. I thought, well... If I did want to run an event, I'd want to regenerate it from Panopticons, and it clicked straight away. Regenerate. Regenerations is, you know, integral to Doctor Who. The name came very, very easily, which to me was a sort of a good feel. A good sign. A good sign. Uh, Titles can often, you know, drag on trying to find them. So um, I did a small event uh, uh, that year um, with a tribute to Nicholas Courtney called Chap with Wings uh, in Oldbourne. Um, and, uh, then 2005, we did the first big event, uh, in a hotel, another hotel here in Swansea. And that was it. I was hooked. <laughs> How much work went into it then at the start? Because this is quite a lot of work. It's, uh, each event is about 18 months in the planning. Uh, and I know it's an old quote and an old adage, but if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Yeah. So everything, there's a running order that I prepared for this weekend that is almost down to the second uh, so that people know where uh, uh, what they're doing. Uh, I know where people should be at a certain time. And it, you could say it's OCD, putting that level of planning into it. Well, you have to, though. But you have to. And the advantage of doing that, then, is if anything goes wrong, you're not concentrating in running the event. You're concentrating on putting anything that goes wrong correct right um so the planning is very important so ordinarily when i'm planning these events um we would have an event today and there would already be uh, a guest an indication of some guests and a booking form for the following event so i'm planning the next event even when i'm delivering the first the first event so each one is about 18 months in the planning um some days are easier than others uh, but there's always something to do in the 18 months, whether it's an act to the phone, a confirmation letter to an attendee, uh, an email to send. There's something to do all the time. Most of the work gets done at the weekend because this isn't my job. No. I'm, this is only my hobby. Um, so, yeah, lots and lots of planning, lots and lots of work. And then everybody comes together. My friends, uh, my stewards, my chief steward, the interviewers, they all arrive on the weekend and it's all planned, ready for them to help me run it. Well, getting into the nitty-gritty of it then, to have people to do the interviews, to have stewards, none of these things organise themselves, and I can imagine that's as much of a headache as making sure you've got the guests. Yeah. Well, in the early stages, I used to run the stewards and the actors, Yeah. Um, which uh, essentially made me ill. I was always ill after the weekend. So a good friend of mine, Hayden Harris, um, he uh, volunteered to be my chief steward, and he runs the stewards, so the chain round times in the autograph, the photograph studios. Uh, I just look after the actors going on and off the main stage, as well as assisting with other things as yeah, well. Yeah. 
that was a whole weight lifted off my shoulders. Um, I, I'm still ill after it, but <laughs> not as ill. Uh, <laughs> I think it's just, you know, once it's over the adrenaline and, and you start to relax and all the germs say, oh, right, he's off, let's attack him. So that's, uh, that's why. So yeah, stewards, very, very important. The chief steward, Aiden, absolutely brilliant. The stewards are all fans, of course. Yeah. Uh, some are my local friends, not so much fans, but they do it because they're my friend. Um, but they absolutely love it. And it's, it's slightly different, obviously, running event uh, than attending one. So mm. they sit in with the people that they've loved watching in the show. And it's more personal. They're having a chat with them. Not just talking about the show. They're not interviewing them. You know, they're yeah, yeah. helping them as they're stewarding. But it's more personal contact. So they're spending time uh, with the actors and the backroom people. Um Whereas ordinarily, like the rest of us, we were just running around queuing and getting yeah, things yeah. signed and, and going into the main studio. So, well, yeah. On that subject, you must have, because you've been doing this and because, not to put too fine a point on it, the number of, the, the kind of guests that you can get, because this is primarily classic series based, the kind of guests you can get, you're going to have the same guests coming every sort of third event or fourth event mm. or something, some of them. Yeah. But you must have made some good friends amongst the acting community. Very good friends amongst the acting community, some lifelong friends like Hayden and Chris and Keith, people that I've met through Doctor Who yeah. uh, and uh, will remain my friends the rest of the life. And yes, some personal friends I've had. Uh, um, actors stay with me when they've been touring the local theatre. Wow. Um, you know, they ring me sometimes and ask me questions uh, about things. Is this, does this sound right to you? So they've all become, uh, not all, uh, yeah, that's yeah. going too far, but some of them have been very uh, good and personal friends. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's good fun. <laughs> what would you say then that, well, I mean, this is a question for the end of the interview, but I'm not done yet, but as soon as we've got there, I'll ask it now. Would you say that that is the best, uh, sort of biggest thing you've taken out of it, being able to make friends amongst those actors? Or would you say there's something else, some other reason that makes it more worth doing? Because, I mean, this must be tremendously fulfilling. I was just going to say it's a very interesting question because it's yes to both of those questions. Because, yes, I've got some personal friends. And you don't consciously set some of these people up on pedestals. But, of course, subconsciously, I'm a big Doctor fan, loved it all my life. Uh, got into it through books, uh, watched the television series, and all of a sudden, you know, you're sitting next to Colin Baker at dinner and you're chatting away, uh, and they, and they're friends. So that is very fulfilling. But also, the other side, to run an event, and you'll hear me if you hear at the end in the closing ceremony today, ask if people had enjoyed themselves. Oh, I think and we know hope, what the answer to that is. Well, hopefully the answer is yes. And if it is yes, in that case, I've enjoyed myself as well. So that's very fulfilling because at the end of the day, I make the decisions on these events and who to ask based on a, what I would like as a fan, what I would like to see, what would I would, what would the uh, combination of actors in the photograph studio, what would I like to see? Um, so, like this afternoon, we've got uh, two doctors against the Valyard. So, oh. it's, it gives us a bit of value uh, for the attendees. It's a nice photograph to have. Would I like that as a fan? Well, yes. 
and you I'd be get and I shall be getting one as well. <laughs> and you wouldn't have to pay for it. Oh no, I have to pay for it because well, the photographer yeah. is um, independent. But uh, oh really? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It's uh, that's his charge, but the photographs are yeah. excellent quality, so I still pay. Yeah. Well, that brings <laughs> up my next question, and I'm not going to ask you about money because that mm. would be tremendously rude anyway, and mm. plus it's not something you could a- answer. Mm. But in terms of the money, this has grown quite a bit since you started it. Mm. I guess what I'm asking is how much of a risk is it and is that part of your thinking when you think well no I'm going to take a year off or it should be part of my planning and my thinking the, the, the trouble is I suffer from uh, a large heart and a small brain <laughs> uh, so my heart overrules the brain and that's why we end up in an event like this with 25 actors uh, it's too many really and actually even from a fan's point of view because there are simultaneous things happening. You can't be in two or three places at yeah. once. It's too big uh, in the amount of actors. But you want to give value to people again. Um, so, yes, it does grow. Um, I. But, you know, just to cut you off for a second, mm-hmm. the nice sort of uh, obverse side of that coin is, because of the way this convention is run, mm. you miss an actor in a panel, mm. you'll see him in the lobby or her in the lobby or in the bar. That's right, yeah. So you'll catch up with them anyway. Yeah, it is. It's that intimate family feel that we started talking yeah. about. Um, it, it lost money. Uh, I don't know if this one, uh, it, it's not a profit-making event, a non-profit. Mm. Um, and that's the reason I stopped it in 2013, because I was putting silly amounts of my own money in to run it. Okay. Um, I should run it as a business, uh, not to make profit, because I'm not interested in that, but to at least break even. Mm. Um, but the heart, that's what I mean about the heart overruling the head, and you end up going to an event and bumping into an old friend and saying, oh, look, just come to Regenerations. And, of course, it's it's an added expense. Am I sorry? No, I'm not. No. <laughs> I've had some be? tremendous times, and... Um, the feedback from the fans, uh, which you know, uh, is is brilliant as well. Well, you so. must have made a lot of friends amongst the absolutely. fans, just the sort of people who turn up. As oh, well. absolutely, yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's an odd thing. Before uh, Hayden was my chief steward, I used to do the registration desk at the beginning right, of the event, yeah. and then of course in the eighteen months previous, uh, they would have been sending me letters, emails, questioning things. So then I could put a face to a name. Now that you're onto the registration desk, it's okay. very easy for you know two hundred plus people to remember your name because you're on stage launching it. But I, you know, sometimes yeah, get tongue yeah, to a yeah. citizen. I know your face, but I can't remember your name. Was when I ran the registration desk myself, you'd connect it and it would go in. So I made loads of friends that way. I remember my friends' names, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. then I've got to ask you: Has a particular year been your favourite year? Was there one particular event that sticks out in your mind? Well, I wouldn't say favourite because that would be sort of um, insulting some of the people that have come. Not insulting, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one year was particularly funny. Uh, Sir Derek Jacobi was one of our guests. And everybody that uh, came the Friday night, Saturday morning to register said the same thing. Is he still coming? (laughs) Is he still coming? Is he here? Because... They couldn't believe that Sir Derek Jacobi was attending, um, you know, a convention. Yeah, yeah. And even I was in trepidation. It's Sir Derek Jacobi at the end of the day, an absolutely fantastic actor, great Shakespearean actor. Well, great at everything he does. Yeah. And he was one of the most nicest, genuine, you know, ineffectual person you'd ever want yeah, to meet. Yeah. A real, proper gentleman. Um, so... 
that sort of sticks out as a really good memory because people were so excited but couldn't believe that he was coming. David Warner, I mean, how many films has David Warner been in? That's oh, an amazing guy. Yeah. His experiences are absolutely amazing. Um, and, of course, what we like as fans is a lot of the actors uh, have not just been in Doctor Who, like Colin and Peter, they've got a huge wealth of experience. They talk about other roles as well, so it makes us interested in the craft in general. So yeah, really and good. people too, of course. That's the big yeah. thing about it is, yeah. fi- you know, th- this is what I find when I go to these things every now and again is that actually you end up not wanting to hear about what they did on Doctor Who, but you want you end up wanting to find out about the people. Yeah. And that's the great thing about this is that this is a real people event. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right because going back to uh, so Derek has been twice. But going back um, to the first time he came, Philip Maddock was here that time as well. So I thought, I'm not going to waste that opportunity. So we put a panel together that we called I called Shakespeare Who. And they went on stage. They didn't talk about Doctor Who at all. They just talked about various stage Shakespeare yeah. touring plays that they'd been on. You could have heard a pin drop in the room when they were talking. One guy came out and said, they, but they didn't talk about Doctor Who. Yeah. I said, no, but they're both going to be on other panels during the weekend to talk about Doctor Who. And besides, you've read it in Doctor Who magazine, what they've got to say about Doctor Who. You don't necessarily need to hear them saying it. No, and when you've got the opportunity to have two big stage actors like Philip and uh, uh, and Derek. Derek there. Oh, Derek, sorry. You yeah, know, yeah. It, it just, you've just got to grab the opportunity with both hands. And um, we persuaded uh, uh, Sir Derek to do the master line, you know. I just want to inform you that I am the master uh, with the watch, the, yeah. the, the fob watch. And he was quite nervous about doing it, but it absolutely brought the house down. Yeah, because he was absolutely brilliant, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, yeah. He was fabulous. And, uh, so really good. Well, you've kind of answered my next question then, I guess. But I, is there a favourite guest? And I mean, I'm not saying this to disparage the other guests, but is no, there one particular person who's really stuck out in your memories of doing this? Um, everyone has been so fabulous, to be honest. I've, uh, I've always had so much fun and uh, um, well, serving them, really, because that's what my job is, is to help them and uh, make sure they're enjoying themselves. Uh, Derek Sewer was brilliant. David Warner's been a couple of times. Colin Peters, Peter, this very event, Peter Davison's first event, uh, First Regenerations. Mm. Um, and he's enjoyed himself. Collins comes several times. Sylvester, I quite like Sylvester and Collins sparring with one another. It all right. casts you back to sort of John Pertwee and um, Patrick and Patrick yeah. Troughton used to have the sort of a similar situation. Uh, Sylvester was also a mate as well. Of course, he's very animated. He's great uh, uh, sometimes to close an event. Does I would say he's great fun on stage, but he very rarely stays there, does he? He doesn't. He's up and down <laughs> the eyes. He's murdered a film. Uh, yeah, but uh, that's him. He loves... And in fact, that's really what Sylvester likes now, is that interaction with people, the live audience, because yeah. that's where he's come from. You know, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. his, his, his live performance, when you can actually see people in the eye and you can see the reaction firsthand. So all of those people that have come over the years um, have just made it all special, really. So it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to pick a favourite. Fair enough. So finally, you've said it may come back in a couple of years, three years, whenever. 
and you've said how much work it goes goes into it and mm. how ill it's made you, but you're still enjoying it. I can tell just I'm talking to you. I'm absolutely enjoying it, and I will pick you up on one thing you mentioned that I didn't answer. Oh, God, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, no, that's fine. Uh, that, uh, that's fine. Yeah, I've just remembered what, I, what the point I wanted to make, really, about it being heavily biased, really, to the, the, to the classic series. Well, I didn't mean it sort of... Oh, no, no, I, yeah. I, I realise that. But there's a reason for that. Um... You know, uh, Philip Maddock, I mentioned him earlier on. Nicholas Courtney was always my guest of honour. Uh, these people are not around forever. Yeah. The new series people will have their opportunity because they're still young. I know they're on stage at the moment, the, the monsters in the current Doctor Who. They will have their time. But our classic series guest, time is going on. You know yeah, that by just yeah, looking yeah. at me. Uh, you know, it's... Um, no, you look so, about 20. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he means wait, uh, listeners. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, I do bias it towards uh, the, the classic series with a sprinkling of new series. Well, the um, other thing there is as well, I mean, and this might sound, well, it's not supposed to sound as if there's any edge to it, mm. but the fact is those older actors, a lot of them are retired, mm. whereas the newer actors, a lot of them are still working and would be too busy. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got to, and it sounds like a slight, but it's not, but you've got to get who you can. Yeah, absolutely, it is. It's people's availability and uh you know an opportunity um you grab an opportunity when you get it yeah and of course with people certainly in the new series that are regulars uh you know the shadows change so often filming opportunities come up oh, it's very very so difficult often, doesn't it? yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. You've got to pull out because all of a sudden they're going to be sometimes in another country doing yeah. something exactly exactly so, well yeah. uh yeah i i do enjoy it uh and um Every nobody you couldn't do it because you don't get any sleep for seventy two hours. Uh, you're running really on adrenaline and coffee. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to see people's reactions and look into the uh, audience and see them smile and they've enjoyed themselves and loads of people come up to you. You know, I'm running around this stop and say, Carrie, I know you rush, but just to shake your hand, and say thank you so much. That that's it. It's a reward enough for me. It's uh, it's fantastic. It's absolutely my pleasure to run these events. Well, you've been running around like a blue-ass fly all day, but thank you for taking the time out to talk to me. Well, thank you for asking me. <laughs> right, now I'm with Gary Russell, who I don't need to introduce. And if I do need to introduce him, then you've all got Google, and you should be ashamed of yourselves. But the reason and I'm... Wikipedia. Wikipedia's, Wikipedia's your friend there. Some of it's even true. Well, on Wikipedia. Yeah. Do you write your own Wikipedia? No, but I, I have edited my own Wikipedia to take out some of the um, scurrilous things. And also the inaccuracies. Uh, Wikipedia originally had me with, my name was, was uh, my middle name was James, apparently. That was news to me. Are you going to tell me what your mi real Peter. middle? Peter. I'm Peter. Um, and it had me two years younger than I actually am, which for a long time I thought, oh, maybe I'll live with that. But no, I changed that. And I, it, it, it attributed... Um, a couple of uh, Mystic Adventures and Past Doctor Adventure books that I never wrote to me. And I thought, it's not very fair on the people that did write them, being tarred with that brush, you know. Oh, I think I... Were they good ones? No, well, I don't know, no, sorry. No, what I was going to say is, I'm not telling you which ones they were, but my thought was, if I'd written those books, I wouldn't want to then look it up on Wikipedia and find out that Gary Russell was crazy. Right? I mean, God, that, that's going to put people off buying those books. So I made sure that um, those books were taken off and it was, it was my books that went up there. No, Gary, I've liked... I've not read a lot of the new adventures and stuff. I mean, I've dipped in, but I, I've missed 
missed out on being a fan when the new adventures were coming out. So I haven't gone back and caught up with everything. But the ones of yours I've read, Business Unusual, Scales of Injustice, I've enjoyed those books. Well, that's very lovely of you. I, I'm, I'm actually very fond of those books. Um, there's a nice little sort of trilogy going in there of, of Autons and Irish twins and things like that, which were based on real people that I actually knew. Do you know this they weren't Autons, by the way. That, that's very important that they were not plastic, but they were a pe- pair of Irish twins who were a very, very odd pair of twins. Oh, fair enough. Do you know the stupid thing I did, though? I read Business Unusual before Scales of Injustice. That, that would have been not making a huge... Well, hmm, it, it would have been all right. It would have been all right. It would have made going back and reading Scales of Injustice, you'd have gone, all oh, right, there's that and that and that, and now I know where that yes, came from. Yes, that's hopefully, exactly what happened. Hopefully you read Business Unusual and didn't realise that you were missing anything. No, I, no, I kind of gathered. It's actually it's one of those things where I'm reading it and I'm thinking, this all makes perfect sense. But, by the same token, I gathered that there had been a book and I didn't realise it was Scales of Injustice until I read Scales of Injustice. I, I, I'm glad, because I, I would just shoot myself if I thought Business Unusual was, couldn't be read without. However, Instruments of Darkness, which was the third one, I think does suffer from the fact that if you hadn't read certainly Business Unusual, I think you'd have gone into Instruments of Darkness going, Whoa, what is this man on? What is he writing about? Um, still, none of it's as bad as Spiral Scratch, so, you know... <laughs> I've got a sport <clears throat> round. What did you say the third one was again? Instruments of Darkness. Right, I've got to pick that one out. You've now. got to pick that up. You've got to pick that. That's the, that's where the story ends. Excellent. That's the end of the Irish Twins and the Vault and all of that stuff. I tell you what, I really did like the Mandragora Helix one. Yeah, that sort of not being Mandragora. Um, I was determined to write a book that didn't have any old monsters in it, and the moment it started being about astrology and I was talking about it to, to Russell and he went oh you should put the Mandragora Helix in in that way that is semi-jovial and semi I've suggested it I think you should now do it um, yeah. and the more I wrote the book I thought you know he's right actually this, this would be quite a nice little tie-in um, and I was kicking myself because I thought I was determined so determined to write a book that had no old monsters in it and then I put the Mandragora Helix in so the next one I did was absolutely 100% bad Gary Russell monsters rather than bad Gary Russell ruining good TV monsters I don't I never had a problem with the books or the audios from Big Finish using old monsters because as far as I'm concerned the thing that's important is the story the plot and if you've got an old monster or something like that that's an extra level of familiarity which allows you to spend more time with the plot. I think, I think that's true and I think it's a very good entry point for someone because you don't then have to focus about worrying about the stuff you're reading monster-wise, you can focus on the Doctor and the Companions. When I was at Big Finish I did actually make quite a, a conscious effort not to do very many old monster stories. I think we did a Dalek and possibly a Cyberman story every year um, and I think other than that I did a I think I did one Ice Warrior, one Silurian, and one Nymon story. And I think that's it for Old Monsters for me. I don't think I did very many more. Um, I found that with Big Finish, I was far more interested in getting... Because when I write, I do Old Monsters. Well, I didn't write for Big Finish. I made a consciousness at the beginning that I would not write for Big Finish. If I was producing, I needed to get 12 other voices in there every year um, to do that. So... 
I, there wasn't the compulsion, I think, to fall back on, on the old familiar old monsters. Mm. Um, certainly when we did the Nymon, that wasn't in Paul's original script at all, and it was me that went, hey, let's put the Nymon in there. Because <laughs> um, I just thought, what is something that was so utterly rubbish on television that would work very well on audio? Because the concept of the Nymon and what they were doing and all of that is brilliant. Right, yes. It's just their execution on TV, same as the Mandrels. I'd love to have done something with the Mandrels because that concept that, that, that Bob Baker came up with for them is phenomenal. Didn't look very good on TV. So when you can take something that doesn't look great on TV and put it on audio and make it work, you suddenly have this vision of, ah, oh, this is what the Nymons would have been if they had money yeah. spent on them. Do you know what always gets me about that? The execution of the Horns of Nymon is dreadful. And that guy went on just a couple of years later, well, six, seven years later, and basically was the guy who created Inspector Morse. Well, Anthony Reid is a... No, not Re- Anthony Reid, the director. Oh, right. Um, oh, God, his name completely escapes me now. I couldn't tell you who directed Horns of Nymon. No, the director of Horns of Nymon was a producer oh, right. at the start of Inspector Morse. Because I always think you know, people talk about the script of Nymon not being very good, but it isn't. It's no, Anthony Reid. The script is so multi-layered and so very, very clever. Yeah. I, I love Nymon. I think it's great. It's just... it's just And I remember... Uh, I'm sure it was June Hudson, but it might not have been. Back at the time, back in 79, being interviewed in something for the Dwaz, probably, and explaining that the original, her original idea was they took the heads off yes, and there yeah. were normal people underneath, and you went, oh, my God, that's the, that's the fakery of it. And they never did it, which is probably a blessing because that, that wouldn't have been that much of a surprise because the heads were quite awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there's an idea, and I think that was one of the lovely things that Stephen did in, in Modern Doctor Who when he did the, the God Complex. Was, was throwing in the thing that these creatures, the Minotaur, was actually related to the, the Nymon species. And you went, yeah, because that's what the Nymon should have looked should like. Have looked like yeah. you know, and, and if you'd had that money and that thing in 1979, Horns of Nymon would have looked as good as the, the God Complex did. Do you know what? Horns of Nymon is one of those stories where actually, you know, people say, fans say, oh, you should never remake old Doctor Who stories. You could do a remake of the Horns of Nymon and really turn it into something special. I know they wouldn't, but... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'm with fandom there. I, I don't think, think there's a, enough story out there that you don't need to remake stuff. Oh, yeah, I don't mean that you need to. But, I mean, if anybody did, that's a story that yeah. could do with it. Yeah. I'd like to just take some of those concepts and, and revamp them. And, and, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Graham Williams era of Doctor Who I it, famously hate City of Death I do I still do and I still think you know I would rather watch Horns of Nymon than I would City of Death out of that season um, for the sheer fun factor of it and because I think it's got a better story and and you know both both Nightmare of Eden and Horns of Nymon as a plot that moves from A to B to C to an end knocked spots off City of Death what City of Death has got that, that Nymon and, and Horns of and, and Nightmare of Eden don't have is beautiful production values fantastic acting and, and some witty one-liners I can't take that I mean you know I'm not stupid I can see why people love City of Death but for me the actual story behind that version of City of Death frankly ain't very good and doesn't make a huge amount of sense and, and the Jaggeroth plan is pretty damn stupid whereas there's something about the Nymons and there's something about the Mandra stories that that are better plotted and I and I'm I like plot and I don't think City Death has a very interesting plot it has it has glorious moments but across four episodes 
it's it's not enough doesn't to doesn't add up um, it's a bit like I'd say the same about Creature from the Pit which I think is one of the best first episodes of any Graham Williams story and then sadly it's got three more episodes um, but then you say that about lots of uh, you look at Time Flight everyone snags off Time Flight terrible terrible story first episode of Time Flight superb piece of BBC drama of its time really really good and unfortunately in the last 30 seconds they throw a plasmaton in it you go oh shit this is Doctor Who isn't it it's going to be crap <laughs> and that's, that's Peter Green he does the same with Planet of Fire the first episode of Planet of Fire it's oh, like yeah, watching yeah. some kind of Michael J. Bird thriller from the, from the 70s and then unfortunately it all goes to tits when they yeah. suddenly go oh no this is science fiction we've got to have a silly race of people and people being threatened to be burned and blah 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 but all that stuff uh, on earth at the beginning with the, the archaeological boat and everything and then the actual Perry finding the TARDIS and them going to San and the stuff with the chameleon being taken over by the master and all that expert and all the beautiful background stuff they layer with Peter Wingard and all those characters superb in that first episode and then it all gets thrown away in episode two. I quite like Planet of Fire, actually. I've got a bit of a soft spot for that. Right. More so than Time Flight. Yeah, I, to me, they're mm, much of a muchness, yeah. Anyway, Gary. Yes. We've been nattering on about Doctor Who for oh, ten minutes. Heaven forbid. We didn't sit down to talk about Doctor Who. We sat down so I could ask you what you've been doing for the last three years and where you've been doing it. Well, I, I'm, I'm currently sitting here in talking to you in Swansea in Wales, which is my home. Well, my home is Cardiff. Um, but for the last three years, I've been whooping it up on the central coast of New South Wales over in Australia, um, where I've been show running and execing um, and creating uh, a TV show for the ABC out there, which is a 26 part animation series for kids, um, all 2D traditional frame by frame animation, which is a very long process. Um, and it's called Prisoner Zero. It has nothing to do with Doctor Who. Hooray! Um, How did the title come about then? Well, Prisoner Zero is a, is, a, is a fairly standard word. It's like right. Patient X or Prisoner Zero. Right. It's the the name. I, I I can't remember whether Mandela was was ever um, Prisoner Zero. I have a feeling Biko might have been at one point. It's the name you give to a usually a political prisoner that you lock away and you don't want anyone to know who they are so you strip away their identity and you just call them zero or prison right. zero or prison one or something like that so it's a fairly common term yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately doc doctor who had a doctor who monster called oh, prison zero so everyone thinks it's the same thing partly i suppose because of my involvement partly i suppose because planet 55 also did the moon base and the 10th planet animations so people think that actually our prisoner zero the, the genesis of that show goes back a long time before Stephen Moffat even started thinking about his yeah, yeah, working yeah, yeah. being the producer of Doctor Who. That's how long it takes to get an animation up and running. Oh, damn right. Um, so, tell me a little bit, before we talk about making it, tell me a little bit what's the story The about. story is basically, um, there's, a, there's a, a character called Zero, he's been in prison, the, the evil Imperium imprisoned him, nobody knows why. His memory has been wiped. He has no memory of who he is. He is sprung from prison by this teenage girl called Jem, who basically want her parents have been taken away by the Imperium. She wants to find them. She wants to help bring the Imperium down. She drags Zero into this. They have a big spaceship, which she's stolen from under the Imperium's nose. There are other crew members. Other crew members join during the course of the series. Um, and it's, it's just basically... The, the main thrust of it is Zero and these two teenagers trying to bring down the evil Imperium. You've sold me. I, it's, it is very, very traditional storytelling, but with a nice sort of 
semi-anime animation style. Um, and I learned a lot from working with Russell over the years about how far you can push kids' TV. And I didn't want to just do something bog-standard. I wanted to do something where the, the story was intelligent and, and far-reaching and had uh, issues within it, which you get when you've got two kids who haven't got their parents um, and various other characters um, that, that are not normal storytelling. It's certainly not normal storytelling uh, for the ABC in Australia. So how, how did it come about that you went to Australia to do this? I, I went over to... Uh, I was asked to go over and be the in-house studio producer. I wasn't the exec originally. I went over just to... So, because my background, my experience of doing the two Doctor Who animations, Dreamtime and yeah. and the other one whose name I've... Infinite, Infinite Quest. Quest. Oh, my God, how embarrassing is that? <laughs> and the computer games. I got to know people in the industry and yeah. they knew me and they wanted someone to fill that slot. So they asked me to go to Australia for six or eight months just to help this thing get off the ground because they were aware that the, the studio doing it hadn't done broadcast TV before. Um, and then through various reasons, I ended up finding sort of a few months into it, oh, actually, no, we'd like you to be the exec, we'd like you to showrun it, throw out everything that's been worked on so far and start again. Oh, really? Um, and so I sort of had a... The, the, the characters were there, the designs were there, but story-wise, the whole 26 episodes, that is all, you know, came from me. There are a couple of ideas that we hung on to, but we didn't hang on to any of the scripts. We, we did new scripts. Um, and I, I made it a little bit more... I don't want to say the word adult, but I made it a little bit more mature, a little bit more... Involved. Yeah, a little bit more character-driven, a little bit more enough to get kids talking about it and get people going I, I think I set out to go what I want to do is that kids will sit down and go yeah this is really cool and adults will go how did they get away with that in a kid show right. and that, that to me is, is what you should be doing with kids because kids kids are far they're, they're the best audience in the world and they're very interested and they're very keen to learn new things and they're yeah. very keen to be exposed to new things their parents however think they should be wrapped in cotton wool um, so you have to have this stri uh, straddle this line between not going over the top so you do something stupid that will actually annoy people, but at least get to the situation where if someone does make a complaint about something, the kids will go, why? What's wrong yeah. with this? You know, it's perfectly... I'm, I'm dashing around the point. Basically, we have, we have two gay dads in it. Um, one of our teenage girls has been brought up by the, this gay couple. Um, and the ABC, when, when we went to them and said, look, you know, we want to do this, and I was expecting the ABC to go, oh, I'm not sure about that. They jumped on it and went, yes, yes, yes. And this came back from my memory of working with Russell on Sarah Jane when we were thinking of making Luke gay, and then when they were do, talking about Wizards versus Aliens and went for Benny to be gay. Um, I thought this is something that, you know, would be good to do in an animation. No one's done that in animation before. Put two gay dads on a spaceship with a, with a teenage daughter. Actually, it sounds like a lot of fun. Huge fun. Huge fun. I mean, the characters are great, and there's, there's lots of laughs and lots of fun as well. But it's not all sort of po face space opera. Yeah, yeah. It is. Well, it, I can imagine having lots two of gay slapstick. dads there. It doesn't. I don't, I don't mean this in a disparaging way in that you stick two gay dads on, you can make gay jokes. But you stick two gay dads on. And actually, the level of humour you get is a completely different level yeah, of humour. But the humour also really comes from... The, the, and we've got a robot as well. We've got a brilliant robot. Oh, right. So yeah. the kids and the robot, you know, the, 
that there's there's humor comes out of that zero has lots of humor because he's a young guy and hasn't got a memory um yeah. and the villains you know i created i i inherited the the lead villain um but i created two new um hench villains, hench villains um who i think will probably be very very i hope be very very popular because um, they're quite camp and nonsensical and, and very very silly um, because that's what hench villains are meant for the, the main villain is meant to be the one you go oh I'm scared of him every time he walks to the door and these two hench people come in and they've you know one is a very very skilled assassin the other is a very very skilled tactician but unfortunately they're, they're told to work together the whole time and they hate each other Yeah. and you know they're both vying for the affection of, of the guy in charge you know well I'm better than her no I'm better than him um, get me to do this plan this week you know general and, and the, the, your plan better not go wrong well of course it goes wrong you know and yeah, yeah, you get yeah. the humour out of that situation there's some sort of good bitchy one liners between these two two hench thugs so this first series is there going to be a second series oh, too early to tell It's the, the show's just started transmitting uh, in Australia last week um Sci-fi cartoons are... Tricky. They're tricky. Most animation these days, I think rather sadly, is very comedy-based. It's, you know, it's cow, banana, chicken and and Spongebob. And it's all that kind of wacky, Mm. exaggerated stuff. Um, And doing something that's a little bit more sort of throwback to Battle of the Planets or something like that, it's been difficult to, to find... The, the ABC wanted that right from the, from the word go. But getting that to go around the world at the moment, when the world is going, well, actually, what we want is comedy vegetables. Um, because the big studios, the big broadcasters, if you're looking at Disney, well, they have access to the whole of Star Wars and the whole of Marvel. Yeah, yeah. So they're not going to buy in another sci-fi thing. Cartoon Network is the same. They've got all the DC stuff. So it's, it's been a hard sell. And selling stuff around the world is what gets you... The second and third series yeah, yeah. Um, so our fingers are crossed because I think it's a good series and it will stand on its own two feet well it certainly sounds like it it's just fun it's just fun yeah. for kids and I love working in kids TV again something I've got from Russell is just an absolute love of kids TV I think it's the best I would work in kids TV happily for the rest of my life well let's face it you've been working in kids TV since you were a kid well pretty much yes it's very interesting we're, we're here at this convention and one of the guests is Clive Doig and Clive was the director of Phoenix in the Carpet which is the first thing I ever did on TV when you were when I was 12, 13 we were talking about it earlier because he remembered that I'd had my 13th birthday on it and said that meant we used you for an extra hour every single night you know and that's why I ended up having lots of scenes in Phoenix in the Carpet by myself with the adults because I could work longer than the other kids same thing I had on Famous Five although I wasn't on Phoenix I was playing the oldest kid Famous Five I wasn't playing the eldest kid but but I was the eldest Ah. kid so they used to go oh right well we'll gear this story so Dick goes off and does things by himself because we can film with him an hour longer than we can the other kids it's very useful being a a year older than everyone else when you're a child actor and looking slightly younger and looking a lot younger yes yeah 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 and slimmer well on that note (laughs) well thanks for sharing all that Gary absolute pleasure mate thank you for asking me Uh, this is JR again, still at Regenerations. I'm with Darren Floyd, who has an interesting story to tell. The reason you're here is because... Uh, we're filming a sitcom called Anorax, and we're pu- uh, publicising it. It's uh, about three 30, uh, three 40-year-old 
Doctor Who fans, uh, it's essentially it's men behaving sadly. <laughs> That's a brilliant way to advertise it. As I understand it, the first two episodes are done and you're going to have a Kickstarter campaign to get the rest of it underway, is that right? Well, we've actually done seven episodes. We've done a lot of guerrilla, yeah, we've done a lot of guerrilla filmmaking. Um, and they're, they're only uh, kind of four or five minutes long. Yeah. And essentially what it is, it's basically gag, 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 uh, bit of character development, and then another gag and then out. Uh, so it's they're quite um, punchy, quite pithy. We get yeah. in and get you know get back out again. So it's um, yeah the uh, the intended destination for them eventually is online, um, uh, but we've got bigger plans, bigger ambitions. We've written um, a final episode, which will be about 20-25 minutes, and we're hoping to get uh, a named actor, um, a, a fairly big actor for it, uh, and that's partly what the Kickstarter campaign's about. Right, yeah. So, apart from gag, 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 character development, three forty-something yeah. Doctor Who fans, give me a bit more about the background of how it works. Well, <clears throat> essentially, I mean, I've been, I, there's never been a point in my life that I haven't been a Doctor Who fan. I've yeah. always been. But as you kind of like grow older and become hopefully a little bit self-aware, you just realise just how ridiculous this thing is. <laughs> and, you, and, and, and in a nice way, you can, well, you're slightly embarrassed about it. Uh, and so, uh, when I've seen fans portrayed uh, in comedy shows, it's always, they, they tend to kind of go for the, the, the easy look. thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's always someone in a scarf, uh, they're always kind of talking like this, uh, they haven't got any partners, and I thought, well, you know, that's one truth, but... The but there are so many others. Yeah, there are so many others. And the story I wanted to tell was kind of like me and my mates and people that I know come along to these things and kind of like talk about stuff. And I, and I realized recently how much I've basically lovingly stolen from high fidelity. It, it's men with their peculiar interests. And so what I really wanted to do, what I was very, very conscious of doing, is I didn't want it to be cruel. I thought that's a very easy thing to do yeah. because I'm a fan uh, pretty much everyone on the project's a fan. And so it was an affectionate and a warm look at, at fandom and, and really kind of universally what men are into. Men are, you know, weird kind of, you know, train spotting or kind of rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all kind of like a bit obsessional about something. And I say this just as someone walks in with a... Um, how would you describe a, a baseball, TARDIS cap? A TARDIS cap with a lantern on top. Right? <laughs> so there's, there's many colours and flavours of fandom, and it's it's endlessly entertaining uh, and endlessly funny. And and kind of one of the, I realised that it was one point where actually I was enjoying the social side of fandom more than I was actually enjoying the programme. <laughs> so it's it's yeah it's it's kind of riffing on that really. I think that's one of the things about conventions. A lot of people go to conventions not because they necessarily want to see the panels. Yeah. Because oftentimes you've seen all those people half a dozen times before. You come here to catch up with your mates. Absolutely, completely. Because we, um, I remember uh, talking to there was a companion from the sixties in the bar, and she was going like, "Who are you here to see?" And I was saying, my mate Ed Stradling and my mate Steve O'Brien. And it's because it's an excuse for you all to get under a room and be a, a little bit kind of... Um, you know, just catch up and... Just catch up and, you know, and just have a nice kind of like quite a funny background against it. And so, yeah, it's always like a lark, always a bit of a laugh. And so, yeah, it, it's kind of putting 
a certain flavour of fandom into a context, you know. And, that, and I'm guessing then that this has rubbed off on anoraks and anoraks has come out of this sort of thing. Yeah, completely, because there's so many stories from when... And I, when I tell my, my friends, and I, I do have friends who are not into Doctor <laughs> they they find it kind of quite, in a way, charming and endlessly amusing, the stories that I tell them about things... And and I'm so, hopefully I'm self-aware enough to realise it is a bit ridiculous. So I thought, well, if they find this funny, I think other people. If we tell the story the right way, yeah, I think other people will find it funny. And what's gone on as we've developed the series is the characters aren't just characters. They're not just um, guys in trench coats with scarves. They're not caricatures. They're not caricatures. So we're rounding the characters out more, and it's it's been you know. Yeah, so satisfying and, and far more collaborative than anything I've done before, so it's been brilliant. Yeah. So where can people find this, or will, will they be able to find this, and how can they get involved in the Kickstarter and stuff? Yeah, well, so you can follow us on Facebook, um, they can follow us on Twitter. Under uh, Anorax? Uh, Anorax TV. Anorax uh, TV. And the, the website is anoraxtv.com, uh, and there are links to the Kickstarter campaign. We previewed two episodes here this weekend that have gone down really well, and I'm so... Um, so happy with the support. Got a lot of we, got, laughs. we got a lot of laughs. We did get a lot of laughs, and in the right places, thankfully, <laughs> uh, and a lot of love. Um, uh, and what we're going to do is, uh, we've still got to polish a, a little bit. We've got to do a bit more work, uh, and we're going to be uh, uh, premiering uh, an episode every week from the 23rd of November. I don't know where we got that date from. Just random. Um, it's funny though. Uh, really odd, seems to land on that odd, day. Odd, odd that. Yeah. So there'll be an episode every week for people to enjoy. Uh, and yeah, working towards a, a nice, satisfying conclusion for the first season. And we've already got some plans about where we can take the second season as well. So it's been hard work, but it's been a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, I hope I hope this podcast brings you a few a bit, a bit more interest. Thanks, JR. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Darren. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Uh, what follows is an interview with Jason Hay Gallery of Big Finish. But sadly, we were recording this out of doors, and it was very windy. And it wasn't until I got home and listened back to the audio file that I realised just how much damage the wind was doing to the recording. Um, it's not appalling all the way through, and it's still well worth a listen, but there is interference by the wind at some points, making it difficult to hear what we've got to say, unfortunately. But I'm going to put it on here, and uh, it's still worth listening to. <laughs> uh, well, I'm here now, still at Regenerations in Swansea, with Jason Hay Gallery of Big Finish. Well, uh, Jason Hay Gallery of Big Finish, what's your position at Big Finish? Uh, I'm the chairman, and... Uh... I suppose the CEO as well. How long have you been doing that? Um, well, well I, and how long have you been with the company? Because you're almost up to, well, it's getting close to 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the company was started by me in 1995 um, to do some other stuff. Um, but it started, it was really dormant for about three years. And then in 1998, which is where we sort of start the, the story of Big Finish, um, we started doing audio productions. Uh, with Benice Summerfield to start with, and then obviously by 1999 we started doing Doctor Who. When you got the license for Doctor Who, I mean, you must have been asked this a million times, mm. how did that feel? Because that was your... Yeah, it was fantastic, because at the time, people forget now that uh, Doctor Who was considered to be a, a bit of a dead series, 
there was no anticipation that Doctor Who would come back again because the movie had um, had not done well in America. It done very well in the UK, you know, had yeah. over 10 million viewers, but um, had not done well in America. And it was considered to be something that was unlikely to come back at this point. Um, Were the BBC receptive then because there was a feeling it wouldn't come back, do you think? No, I think it was more to do with the fact that um, they just wanted to, you know, find new ways to make money out of programmes. And um, we were coming there saying, we'll pay you money to um, produce our own versions. And, you know, that made a lot of sense to people. Well, and here we are nearly 20 years later, Mm. and really sort of two questions propose themselves to me. Do you find it, and this is probably going to sound a bit disingenuous, it's not mm. meant that way, do you find it surprising that the BBC still lets you get on and do this now that <laughs> Doctor Who's back and hugely successful? Because they had a history in the past, with the books particularly, mm. after the TV movie, of taking everything back in-house. No, absolutely. But they seem really happy with what you do. We've been, we've been very lucky and we've had a lot of support, um, both Russell T. Davis and, and obviously a lot of other people, um, including Steve Moffat, have been incredibly supportive of the work that we do and and Russell's argument was at one point was was basically that we were providing uh, a sort of like a a stepping on point for a lot of writers Um, if you think about it the first series of Doctor Who when it came back um, all the writers had worked for Big Finish yeah yeah so um, obviously it's a bit in disingenuous uh, (laughs) in terms of they obviously were professional writers but it was interesting that um, well, it was a good way of seeing who was a professional writer who could also do Doctor Who. Yeah, who, who could do Doctor Who because thing. they... Exactly, and someone like Rob Shearman has said on many occasions he wouldn't have got his episode Dalek if it hadn't been for Big Finish. Yeah. So that's not to big ourselves up. The thing was that people were saying, oh, they can write Doctor Who, let's let's use them in the series. You know? Well, one of the other things that interests me now is not the spin-off Rangers, but mm. the other stuff that you do that's not Doctor Who. Yes. Because when you first started... He can't, uh, yeah. Doctor Who was basically the reason you did start, but now you've got well, so yes. many other things going on. How do you choose it? How do you stay on top of it? And do people come to you with ideas, or do you go to people with ideas? Sometimes? There are a couple of producers who come to us. Scott Hancock's a very good example of that. But he'll come and say, "How about doing this?" And we'll go, mm, "Okay." Let's do it. Um, the bigger, uh, but in general, we do sit down and we go through possible lines that we'd like to do and um, try and get the rights to do so. Um, there's there's a number of rights we're going after at the moment which are taking some considerable time. There's there's some series which we've gone after for the last decade. And haven't been out again. No, no. But sometimes you... The reason why you keep trying is that... Um, Person, personnel always change yes, and um, what one person says and then three years later they're in a different job new person comes in and they say oh this is brilliant why don't we do this and you're going right okay don't mention the person <laughs> um, and then you get some excitement and then, yeah, away you go it's um, there is a um, audio production is, is a wonderful thing because it takes such a short period of time I've been discussing something with uh, an actor's agent the other day and I said well you know this is the fee, this is this, this is, but it is only three days in the studio. Yeah, yeah. And we'll treat her very well and blah, blah, blah. And, and you don't have to it, learn you lines, you don't have to. Pay Hollywood money. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, people were surprised when we got John Hurt, for example, to come back as the War Doctor. But the reality is, John actually fancied doing it. Yeah. He doesn't need to do it. No. <laughs> you know, he does not need to do it. Um, he, he, um, 
has a fantastic career and also you know if he didn't want to do it we could have offered him a million pound a day and he wouldn't have done it or maybe a million he might have done but if <laughs> no one's going to offer him a million pound a day for an audio production but um, the reality is he was like yeah I'd like to I fancy this that's fine and he's done um, he's done 12 so far and we'll see what happens in the future um, he um, he's a he's a wonderful actor and uh, he's very supportive of us and he's enjoyed working with us so. do you find as well having somebody like John Herb will enable you to go to other people who previously would probably have said no uh, I think over the years it has been an advantage of having more and more um, uh, I hate to use the word names if you yeah, see me but yeah. um, well known actors that people respect so you get certain people in like I mean David Warner is a prime example of that within the acting profession he's so well respected and he's a lovely bloke and he's a fantastic bloke and he's very sweet and he's very very supportive and uh, of Big Finish and he likes what we do um, he likes the way that we do it so he's he's always telling people oh Big Finish love them yeah you know, so yeah, yeah. we know this because we find out because <laughs> people so, come in yeah, and say yeah, so. Yeah, they do, and and there's that thing that you know certain people like John Hurt and David David and um, even, even you know recently when we had David Tennant in, yeah, you know, yeah. um, uh, we had a once it got out we got David and we was trying to cast around. Um, the amount of actors went yes immediately, right? Just because they just want to work with David, you know, yeah, which is understandable, yeah. you know, and 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 of course Catherine as well and Catherine was amazing um, it's um, it is my favourite um, I shouldn't really say this but it's probably my favourite <laughs> this is where you get into trouble of, of, of recent years it's one of my favourite pairings of Doctor and Companion right uh, it's such a good team um, so it was lovely to get them back and get three new stories of them. well just listening to those three stories mm. you can tell how much fun they're having yeah. doing them and that's no, just totally I say that's just that's three days in the studio well, doing audio yeah because they they but that shows you just how much fun they had when they were doing it full stop. Exactly, like Catherine yeah. and David are very, very good friends in real life. You know, and before Doctor Who, they were friends. Um, and they, uh, and he's done the Catherine Tate show with her. She's come and done stuff with him. Um, it was another opportunity for them to work together, and that was, I'm sure, one of the contributing factors. Was it? Did it make a big difference then, getting rights to new series and stuff? Has it, that brought the company on a bit? Yes, you say? yes, a bit. But I'm, it's not. It's not radically changed our whole life. No. <laughs> what it has done is it's it's given. I mean, the, the new series stuff that we've done has been extremely well, well received and embraced because so many people were waiting for us. Yeah. You know, the Diary of River Song has been an incredibly big seller, as is the Tenth Doctor, as has um, the... We've recently had them... Uh, I've got to do this right. Old Doctor's New Companion... New, <laughs> new, new Monsters, Monsters, that's it. Um, which, which has been... Um, brilliantly received but also has sold incredibly well because it's it's what people were waiting for yeah. people wanted to see the Jadoon again people wanted to see the Weeping Angels again and um, and this it, actually given mm -hmm. new series people who probably 
would never have dreamed of listening to Doctor Who on a CD it's probably given them the wherewithal to do so I think that they, I, I wouldn't overstress that but right. I think there has been some new people come yeah. to us who have been have sort of known about Big Finish for a number of years and been like oh yeah 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 I will sort of get around to it. that day, happened yeah. to be honest with you we had a big spike after the um, Night of the Doctor with Paul McGann yeah, of because suddenly our Paul McGann started selling a hell of a lot more uh, and you understand why because suddenly he'd been on television a whole new um, a whole new uh, well it was about seven and a half million people had downloaded uh, or viewed on uh, YouTube yeah, and BBC iPlayer and um, don't quote me on that seven and a half I think that's an assumption I've made based on figures I've sort of heard but um well, I think the, the numbers are there on the page. Well, they, they are, yeah. 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 I don't think the BBC iPlayer ones are there. But, oh, no. But I think not. it's about seven and a half all over. And it's brilliant. I mean, it's fantastic. It's given him a new lease of life in terms of um, people's interest in his doctor. Um, and it just meant that we just suddenly sold a hell of a lot of Paul McGann audio adventures. Do you ever find, and this isn't me looking mm. for gossip or... Uh, snarking at anybody do you ever find some of the actors come in and they aren't really quite sure what to make of it and I'm assuming by the fact that they all stick around that once they do realise what's going on that they embrace it I think um, we do there's constantly I will talk to actors and they will say "I, I don't understand science fiction yeah I don't understand Doctor Who they know it's a, it's a very important show. They know it's a great fun thing to do, and they come in and they have a great time and they 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 have good fun. They get to do some decent drama and a bit of comedy, and and they enjoy themselves. And they go away going, you know, I won't say who, but one actor said, "I really really enjoyed that. Didn't understand the word of it, but I really enjoyed it because <laughs> it's not really their thing." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. um, and you, you sometimes you do worry. You think, oh, did they? But the reality is that they can play. They're very good actors, and they can just play it anyway, even and if they don't got... quite. It's not really their cup of tea. Well, and the other thing as well is the directors you use are all ones who are seasoned on Big Finish, but mm-hmm. have an understanding of other things as well. Yes. So they, they, they're, they're they've that done theatre. They've done yeah. audio work. They've, a lot of them have acted as well. So well, Lisa Bowman's in the theatre as we speak. I think. Yes. Well, she finishes. She finished last night. Actually. Oh, did she? Yeah. Uh-huh. So they closed last night. I saw it on Facebook. So um, no, Lisa's a, a brilliant actress, and um, it does help, I think, as a director, being a very good actor. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, it gives you a perception. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of very, very good directors who can't act, and um, often that's um, you know you, you can find really good directors who can't act, and one of the aspects is that they can recognise what is good acting. Yeah. So, um, and that's vital on audio. You yeah. can get away with it sometimes on television or in film, as long as you've got splashy pictures. But on audio, you absolutely need to make sure the performance is one hundred percent centered. This is the other thing you see, which is you have to have a good performance, and it's not about what you look like. It's no. Sometimes we we have there are some actors who we haven't worked with because we just we go mm, uh, okay because they look amazing and they are great television and film but uh, it, audio is a different discipline it's about what, how you shape your voice and um, but it's it's, a, it's an ongoing discussion casting because obviously we can't use the same people over and over again yeah. um, I do a, a lecture at GSA every year 
um, for the um, for the actors about to go out in the big bad world mm. and I, I do a two hour lecture which basically outlines um, what the real world is like because I've produced a bit of television theatre a lot of theatre audio obviously and various other things so I, I come in and, and talk about I think about everything and it's um, and we have a question now so showcase I go and see them all and it it's deliberate because um, I get to know them a little bit by chatting to them and then I see their showcase and if they're a good actor and I think they're a nice person I'll go right we need to get them into our stories because um, we're always looking for new actors I just listened to the Genesis Chamber mm. this last week and you've got two new young actors who've come in mm. on that and they're both exceptional and they both obviously yeah. got it straight away absolutely. they knew what they were doing absolutely and, and that's great because you have to find them I mean we just um, there's a an actor called Georgina Hellier who um, who I spotted last year's showcase and we just used her so basically it's taken uh, where are we now which month is this September is it really okay yeah. <laughs> God. Um, so it, it's been about 16 17 months yeah about that since I first saw her showcase and we've just used her because we were waiting for the right part to come up yeah um, and well, she's doing a Tom Baker well, yeah. yeah you can't so, just throw somebody in because you like them you oh no you throw them in in the right place they have to be the right person at the right time and she's done extremely good I got very very good feedback from um, from the director and uh, that's fantastic so hopefully we found another actor who will do quite a lot of work with us excellent and well, that's what you're after yeah one more question then <clears throat> Do you still find it exciting getting up in the morning and going to work at Big Finish? Yes. <laughs> Although some mornings are, um, you know, it's like, oh, but um, it's like anything when we get a bit older. Um, when, when we're all starting to get near 50 or over 50 now. Yeah. And uh, I think part of that is, so, but we still got the same enthusiasm because the great thing about Doctor Who and the science fiction worlds that we work with is that it's um, it can be a new story every day it's a new challenge as well yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so because it's a new story every day I think um, if we had been doing um, an audio soap opera for 20 years that would have been wearing I think you know you would go I've done this I've done this now I want to move on you never feel like you want to say I've done this because right, you yeah. can never finish Doctor Who Exactly, yeah. It's like playing championship manager. You can never finish it. <laughs> I'll have to take that on trust. <laughs> Jason, thanks very much Thank for very talking much. to me. Cheers. And now I'm with Tom Spilsbury and Peter Ware of Doctor Who magazine that just recently celebrated 500 issues. How was that? Um, well, that was exciting, getting it finished. <laughs> and and now we're celebrating 504 issues. Well, what was the party like? Oh, the party What itself. was it like to actually pass that mark? Well, it was a relief because it's been on the horizon for so long. You kind of know that that 500 milestone is, is, is in the diary. It was going to be May the 28th or whatever it was. I knew it was going to come out. So you're, you're working up to it for... Well over a year, I was thinking, right, this time next year we're, we're going to be really into the 500. So you have to plan ahead. And I always had the idea that we were going to do the recreation of the first issue cover. That was the, that was my, yeah. you know, that was the, my uh, first idea. Yeah. Um, but I knew if we were going to do that, we were going to have to get the photo done in good time because otherwise, you know, you can't leave it too last minute. Um, so 
you know, as with all of these things, it was kind of a sort of sense of, of dread as, as the time was running out. But um, we were working on it for, for much longer than just the, the usual four weeks that we have to, yeah. to work on an issue. It, it was at, the, at least a year in the planning, really, and it did feel like we were working on it forever. I was going to go on and say, how easy is it finding stuff to fill Doctor Who magazine every month? Yes. Yeah, so in the case of the 500 particularly, I knew that we needed some... Um, some very specific things that would feel worthy of being in the 500th issue. Um, so I wanted something from Peter Capaldi because he's the doctor at the moment, yeah, so yeah. that made sense. Um, so we actually spoke to him um, the previous autumn, um, but had made sure we'd got some quotes particularly about the magazine so that we could separate those off. So that was in fact, we did that the same day we did the photo shoots actually with the Dalek. Oh, right, um, yeah. So we kind of got all of that. You know, once something's in the bank, you kind of think, right, good, that's um, that's sorted. I knew we wanted to do something with Tom Baker um, because he'd been the Doctor at the start of the magazine, and we what we had ambitious plans to do a whole issue, which was going to be a big interview. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't confirmed until quite late in the day because he was keen to do it, and then he went a bit quiet um, because he, he he was sort of. You know how how are we going to do it and and, and he so was on. Very he was very keen to make sure that it wasn't just another Tom Baker interview. He wanted to make yeah. sure it was something very special for the fans for a 500th issue celebration. And, and hopefully it was it was that it was um, uh, you know it was kind of definitive in some ways. But well, I knew that, that we would then have a part. It would be like a preview for the 500th, and then the, 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 it would like the celebrations would continue in the in the next issue. So that was in there. Um, that worked really nicely, actually. Yeah, the I fact that, that the yeah 501 was just as special an issue as 500 in, in its own in di- slightly different way. Yeah. And what um, happened because of that was because I mean sometimes if you've got an anniversary coming up, you'll get to the anniversary and the day after the anniversary will feel flat. But because you did the Tom Baker thing, the following issue, it felt like the party hadn't finished. Well, we were very conscious of making sure that issue 500 wasn't going to be a, a good place for people to stop. Oh, yeah. we, we wanted to make sure that the 501 was going to be as good as yeah. um, as issue 500 in terms of yeah, and there was some exciting content we could provide. There were some cards and things as well, which carried on into the next couple of issues, and we had. I mean, a few things, even even sort of doing the Peter Davison thing and so on. We we you want to to, to say, well, look, the, the the magazine is is at the top of its game, and we're still going to be able to carry on doing, you know, good, strong interviews and features and and covers and and, and all the rest of it. So, I, I you know, you you never want there to be a bad issue. No. So you're always trying your best. Obviously, you know that sometimes there are going to be things which succeed more than others, but. Um, I wanted to sort of, in a way, have the 500 as a, as a good launch pad for a really, a really strong run. So hopefully, people have enjoyed it. Have you found, have you found it more difficult than usual on a year where there's no Doctor Who on the television? Or do you actually find that frees you up to do some things that you might not otherwise be able to? Uh, a bit of both, really. Um, I think when you when you have a series on television, you know you've got three or four issues which are. You know, in the in the diary, you know they're going to be the ones where, you know, I mean, this time last year we were doing, you know, the the, the Dalek cover for the season opener. And we had a Zygon one um, to, for that, and then I think we did a sort of Clara as the waitress, and then it was Christmas before you knew it. So, um, so we kind of knew that, that that there was a shape to those issues because that's what was going to be on television, and of course you're going to be led by that. Um, 
in, so it's a challenge when you haven't got that there, but I think also you, you, you can sort of move to the centre stage a bit more because you can then be the main event of the month. Yeah. So if you do your big Tom Baker interview or, or Peter Davison or, or um, you know, earlier in the year we'd done a TV movie, 20-year retrospective, that becomes, hopefully, the, thing the, that people the, are talking the, the Doctor about. Who thing of the month, in yeah. a way. Yeah, and then coming up, we've got 10 years of Torchwood and classes launching and there's 50 years of Power of the Daleks. So there are always these things um, which, which we knew from the start of the year would be potential covers or be potential main features for the magazine coming up. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's Christmas. I think what I did, you, you sort of, you start thinking about covers because you always, you've always got to have something which is good enough and big enough and exciting enough to be your, your main thing of the month. So at the start of the year, I think I did sit down and write down as many things as possible that we could potentially do. Work a cover um, yeah. yeah, we knew we, had, we were going to have something with River Song at the start of the year, but also we wanted to have a John Hurt interview. We knew that the David Tennant audios were coming on. We knew there was issue 500, of course. We had the Tom Baker idea. We hoped we were going to do Davison. Um, that actually moved later in the year than it was originally going to be because his autobiography changed dates. Right, yeah. um, you know, there was... Um, the t- 20 years of the TV movie so uh, you know I'm sort of counting them off thinking have we got to 13 things yet? and actually you want slightly more than 13 because you know because you know things are going to fall yeah, through I think, or, or they'll, ha- they'll happen in the same month so you can't do them both right you know yeah, or, yeah. Or, um, or, or whatever so you kind of need to have um, enough ideas that you know are going to be strong enough covers because you, while you could have Peter Capaldi and, and uh, you know the TARDIS on, and maybe Jenna Coleman on it as you know the new companion hasn't arrived yet anyway yeah, yeah. Um, you know you couldn't do that every month I think you'd say well what's, what's interesting about it this month so that's why I think you need to go back into the whole history of it um, do you find that the ones with the covers that are more orientated towards the classic series do slightly less well or more well or well, we've got a very loyal readership, so whatever we do, um, we, we, well, we know we've what got a, get, a, a, a solid number of people. Um, I think it's what you do with it, because if, if, as long as you're doing something interesting with it, um, you know, I think, I think that, that will be a hook. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I might... You, you, could, you could do something which you think, well, that would, would anyone buy a... a Cover with a wolf weed on it. That might, that might not be the most um, um, the wisest thing. I to think do. you underestimate our audience. Yeah. Yeah, I love the wolf weed. I, well, the, 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 the thing is, I'm, I'm kind of half joking. But, but if we did do that, it would probably. I'm sure it would still sell a certain number of copies. But it wouldn't be a particularly. Yeah. You know, what, what's the what's the hook about that? What's what, what's an interesting picture? Um, so yeah, you're always looking to what, whatever it is, and and of course, you know. As far as I'm concerned, as the magazine is concerned, it's you know one big 53-year watch yeah. of Doctor Who. So we're always we're always picking from all the different eras. Um, you know, there's there's many different eras even within the last 11 years now yeah, of, since now. it's come yeah, back. Yeah. So um, so yeah, you know, we'll, we'll we'll want to kind of make sure everyone gets something that that, that we know is is their bit of Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, so you want you want variety from one month to the next. So, uh, you know, we're, we're very lucky, I think, that we have that freedom to do that. But there is a challenge to make sure that it's, it's, it's good enough. I don't think you could just put on, you know, not to denigrate anything that was done in the past, but sometimes I think in the past they just have a nice picture of, of Joe Grant. And you think, well, what about her? You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. um, 
it, you, you need to have a headline. Is it an interview? Is it um, you know? Is it is it an interesting new angle? What what are we what what are we saying? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and but I think that's because publishing has changed as well. If you look at old magazine covers, you know, they, they sometimes I think the headline is not even anything to do with the picture. If you yeah, look at yeah. the old, if you look at the old two magazine covers, so many times in the past, yeah. But they're sort of being, you, you know, um, think, well, why why has it got a. a a, a picture of Tom Baker if the headline is Attack of the Cybermen or, or whatever it, it was it never seemed to make a whole lot of sense um, so that now was standard once upon a time yeah I think it was partly because of the the, the way they'd have to send the, the, the picture off before they knew what the words were you know it uh, would be probably, you know yeah. that sort of thing but um, so yes now we, we you know that the cover is the best advertisement you can have for your magazine so you're always trying to to make that make sure yeah yeah, yeah. Look, you guys have got to dash off, so one very brief question before you do, because you're due on a stage somewhere. Are you both still enjoying yourselves? Love it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's hard work, and, and you, but it's always the most exciting thing when you actually get the new issue back from the printers and, you know, people are going to actually see it. Excellent. Thanks very much, guys, for talking to me. That's Peter Ware and Tom Spilsbury from Doctor Who magazine. Thank you. Still it's rolling, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, 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 Nice bunch of people, lots of nice questions, mm. lots of enthusiasm. So, yeah, good. Part of course, really. Well, my first one. Oh, is, it, first is it really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so, tell us what you're working on at the moment, Mike. Or, or if you can. If you can. <laughs> We've just delivered um, two newly restored and refurbished monsters to the Doctor Who experience. Oh, right. yeah. Just done Morbius and the Mandrel. I think there's a, have you got a video up on the fan right. show? The fan just show done that, yeah. has just done a feature uh, about that work. So it's part of an ongoing programme that we're doing with the guys down at Doctor Who Experience. And we've got a public vote. We put eight monsters out there, two right. from Tom's era, two from Peter's. Two from Collins, two from Sylvester's, and unsurprisingly, the two from Tom. The two from Tom have won. Um, so we've refurbished um, Mandrel and Morbius. Uh, they're now on display, and now we're looking at right what will the next refurbishment um, pieces be. 
plan being that as we go through the year, we'll hopefully pull everything that's currently in languishing in the basement yeah. uh, and get it back on display again. We did Davros earlier in the year. Obviously, we did the giant robots and the, yeah. the Ice Warrior when the thing first opened. Yeah. But there's still a few still to go. You know, we've got. Drathro and Vervoid and Laxon and yeah. the Yeti needs a little bit of care and attention. Right. So. Um, I understand that Morbius now has your arm. Yes, um, <laughs> obviously the costume had Stuart Fell's arm on it originally, ah, and when it went on display uh, in either Longleat or Blackpool, I'm not quite sure where it was, it had like a mannequin arm on it, but we wanted something that looked a bit better, so... Um, I figured Kondo's arm could could work just as well be my arm, so uh, <laughs> I did a cast of my own left arm and added that to the costume. So immortalised in the Doctor Who exhibition at last. Can we steal your fingerprints off it? Yes, <laughs> that's a good point. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> got that bit. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, ultimately, uh, are we going to end up with uh, almost like the Doctor Who equivalent of the Lucasfilm archive, where there'll be this big hangar just full of pristine Doctor Who costumes? Do you know what? I wish I could say that, but the, the truth of the matter is that so much stuff has gone over the years, yeah. you know, either through the just natural rotting away. Yeah from the number of auctions that have been, I mean, the mammoth auction that was done at Longleat in 83, where I still recall to this day a man walking out through the, the Longleat car park with one of the giant clams from Genesis of the Daleks on his head, trying to get the bus home. So, so much stuff has already gone into private collections. And so much of it, like the tapes, was just thrown away. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we did a podcast earlier today, and Michael... Uh, Keating was talking about you know, EastEnders. Well, EastEnders was responsible for the, the BBC FX department being told, clear your warehouse, we want to put this new backlot set in. And Please don't give me another reason to dislike it, please. <laughs> and everything got thrown away. So, But the truth is, it, over the 50 years the programme has been being made, if we kept every single thing, it would be a warehouse. It would yeah. be an enormous yeah. warehouse. Yeah. Uh, I'm still sad we don't have any heart pieces kicking around. Um, what, at all? It doesn't look like it. And when you look at some of them, like Zabi and Mechanoids, they're big fiberglass things. Yeah. So they must... They, what, could, have, what, they could have they, survived. They could arguably have survived. Yeah. 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 Stores aren't that big. And yeah. even these days, when you get eBay um, auctions coming up and somebody goes, oh, this was my grandfather's, he's just died, we found it in the attic. It's a carnival head from uh, Terror of the Autons. That only turned up like a couple of years ago. Wow. Really? Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's perfectly feasible that some stuff is still out there. When I attended a convention as a fan back in 79, I went to Glass Dune City University, and they had a quark there. Well, so a quark existed as late as 79. So, yeah, where is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have, I think we have another guest coming to join us. Is joining us. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I thought this was the one before. Well, I, I think. I, I think the lines are blurred, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yes, now I think it's a fluid situation. Yes, it's kind of it's it's fine. It's all very relaxed. Yeah. Talk, that's fine. Um, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, Michael Jason of the Valyard fame has, has just joined us at the table. Uh, we've been talking to Mike Tucker about. Um, uh, monsters that he's been restoring. 
Um, well, one of the monsters we have on the list to restore is from the mysterious planet, the Trial of a Time Lord. It's the big Drathro robot. Because oh, that was the first uh, story I worked indeed. on. Oh yes, what's that with um, what's that with um, Brian Blessing? Uh, one before it, yes. Tony Selby. Yes, and that guy, Joan Sims as well, Did and that guy who was a box, had been an ex-boxer, got into um, London's Burning. Eventually, that must also nice guy. Um, that's well. mine. So, um, Good-looking chap, and he was the. He I know what you mean. Subtle on glitz, and he played whatever it was. Oh, God, I remember. Um, God or something. He, no, he's he's the dude that runs the the, the planet. In he's he wears the he wears a pink thing. I think. <laughs> he's and a he, black guy. Yeah, black guy. And he ended up he ended up playing he ended up playing Martha's dad. Black. In in when oh, Doctor yes. came back, he was yeah. Martha's dad. Yeah. But I can't remember. Frax. Ah. It's called Frax, <laughs> I think. People with their program guides around you, we can look that yeah. up later. One thing you do have move. is the, uh, the Keeper of the Matrix. Yeah. Yes. The costume in the experience. Which yeah. Which, yes, more. obviously Michael Wore at the end when That's he right. escapes. Yeah. Yes. We know in the grand scheme of things, we're only going back, what, 20 years mm. into the history of Doctor Who? Or yeah. is it 30 years? 30 years. Yeah. Of Doctor 30 Doctor now, yeah. uh, I thought, it, I, I worked it up the other day when I was on one of these things in... Um, Edinburgh or somewhere. I said, oh, it was about 23 years ago. 30 years ago. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, then it is 30 years Eight, since I did my first Doctor Who. Yeah. 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 It's made uh, we, wow. And we're still you, here. <laughs> <laughs> were you involved in the model shop then at the beginning? Yes. My first job on Doctor Who, uh, Mike Kelt um, said to me, we need a model of the TARDIS because the TARDIS models have gone missing. We need two. We need one about two foot tall and one about six inches tall. So the one that you see spiralling into the space station yeah. in that opening shot is the it's, first thing I yours. built. Fantastic. So okay. quite a nice introduction to Doctor Who. Yeah. Mm. So. Go and build a TARDIS. I mean, yeah, exactly. You have to colour match the real prop? Yep. You did? Okay. Yep. Would, you, would you, I've been asked this question so many times, would you at that time have thought that Doctor Who would still be going 30 years? No. no not same here. Not, not because I didn't think it was any good. But, but nothing last time. No, <laughs> but also I figured, well, the American series with Paul McGann is going to take off and they'll do it and that's it. Yeah. It'll be made the other side of the Atlantic and we won't have anything more to do with it. The idea that I'm now back on the show yeah. and building another TARDIS for you know, Matt Smith's Doctor. Very odd, very odd to have that longevity to it when it had already had this fantastic run already. Yes. But you know, you think we're, what, 11 years into the new series? Mm. Yes. Yeah, and you. So, what's the most recent thing that you've done? You did the submarine. For the Cold last War? thing we did was Time of the Doctor, Matt's regeneration Matt's story. Okay. So, yeah, that season we did Cold War, the fiftieth yeah. Day of the Doctor, and Time of the Doctor. Um, and are you? Hoping for some more model work for Capaldi at some point? We're in negotiation. I'm okay. speaking to the new team, but as always with these things, you know, you you pitch, you hope. If, if the right project or the right script and the right sequence comes along, I'm sure we'll be back. But, you know. And in the meantime, you've been doing Red Dwarf. I've been doing Red Dwarf um, as well, yes. A new series of that, which starts in about two weeks, I believe. Yeah. Um, and Adam and I uh, saw episode five. We were lucky enough to get. Oh, they switched the order around. I hadn't heard about that. Um, but from, it was one of these things where watching it, and then they kind of tell you what's going to be in the special effects thing. And I was like thinking, well, is this going to be CG? Is this going to be a model? It's a mix. It's we, going to be a mix. We've used some model work and some computer graphics. So I think, as always, we're using the best of both worlds, where it's appropriate crashes and explosions being done. You know, Sometimes we use the models. If it's big space stuff, 
you know, yeah. into the CG, but you, you barter and negotiate and sit down with your colleagues in the other departments and work out the best way of doing it. So have you had to build a new Starbuck model? Um, there is a new Starbuck model. Yeah. We didn't actually build it. Right. We were one of several effects companies that are on board this year, right. and the Magic Camera Company actually built this year's Starbuck. The new Red Dwarf too? And the Red Dwarf, yeah. But um, I built the new Bazookoids. Oh, right, yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Scutters are back too. Yeah, I think Scutters are back as well. I, I haven't had that. Well, no, I think the photos have come out. Yeah, now, but yeah, you know, it's it's a mixture of old series and new. It should be, it should please everybody. Hopefully. I'm actually when you think of over the years, I remember, oh God, in the sixties, a uh, quick change, and then suddenly Velcro arrived. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, on his level, with all the levels, the technology. Yeah. And I think sometimes they go a bit too far, but the technology is unbelievable. Yeah. When yeah. you think, when the old Doctor Who, when Hartnell and um, Troughton were doing it, I mean, sets looked as if they were going to fall over, and probably they did sometimes. Yeah. But nowadays, yeah. you can't get away with that. You can do anything digitally. And, yeah. and, and you can fix anything digitally. So even if something doesn't quite work the way you want it, fix it in post. Yes, and I do yeah. think in some ways it can get rid of the soul of something. The, yes. I mean, it's like, um, and I think I've said this before, it's like Eccleston doing a northern accent and then saying, uh, oh, well, he's from the north. And, and then he said, I don't want to sound posh like Tom Baker. I sent Tom Baker a message saying, Eccleston has just called you posh. You know, <laughs> 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 and, and then Capaldi says he's Scottish. Doctor Who, to me, is... It doesn't come from anywhere at all. Mm. And to say, I know it's because Moffat's Scottish, but call Doctor Who Scottish. You're in, you're in trouble. <laughs> lots of planets, lots of planets have a Scotland. Yeah, clearly. must be. Must be. Um, <laughs> now, I remember watching Trial of a Time Lord uh, on video. And when you turned up, my, my dad was like, oh, that's Michael Jason. He was in the power game. So I, I can't, obviously... Uh, go by without asking you about your experiences of the power game. Oh, it's very funny I just talked about that in an interview. I, I, it, I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company at the time because we, we were in a, 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 I wasn't in the shows every day. They allowed me to do the power game. So I was doing the power game at the same time as acting on stage occasionally. In the, uh, I think it was a relapse or something else. And I found it so, because I'd just finished doing Laertes with David Warner's Hamlet, which, and that, that three hours, 25 minutes, we had two weeks' rehearsal in the old days for the day. Two weeks. Of course, Patrick Weimark generally was having too much to drink, and then would dry out two days before, and then forgot what he'd been doing in rehearsal. However, I, I, li I like working with him, but... No, he ruined his career because of the drink. He died when he was about 45. But I got episode four to begin with. I thought, well, I hope they haven't written episode one yet. So I thought, well, I better not do too much. So then I'm episode five, and then we went back to episode one. And quite a lot of the critics were saying, Michael Jason plays this superbly enigmatically so I didn't know what was coming <laughs> and so I got good notices for the wrong reasons because I thought well, 
And then it, it worked out okay, we did another, I don't know, 12 episodes. But when it finished, when Patrick died, they were going to have... Pat, uh, Barry Ingham was going to take over, but then they decided it wouldn't work. But I, I, it was marvellous to be in... I thought, television's a doddle. <laughs> Two weeks rehearsals, and I'm also on stage sometimes at night. It seemed so easy after doing three and hours, 25 minutes of Hamlet. Because, <laughs> I mean, again, when I joined the BBC, I still caught the tail end of what everyone refers to as the golden era. There was the Acton Hilton in the rehearsal rooms. Oh, yeah. There was the, the effects department, costume department, the set department, the makeup. They were all in-house. Yeah. Everything was made at TV Centre or if it was on film at Ealing. Yeah. You, you never needed to step outside the boundaries of the BBC yeah. system. No. Everything was just this, this wonderful self-contained little company. Yeah. And then it all started to break down and our producers can go outside and you know you can use these studios and that studios and the, the John Burke breakup of the BBC. Yeah, in, in those days, you, the days you're talking about, there did be about five or six shows going on yeah. at the same time in the same rehearsal room. Yes. I think there were six, seven, six rehearsal rooms. Yeah. And everyone would have dinner in the canteen up there and then yeah. you'd all be at television centre and in the bar of an evening there'd be, well... That's Top of the Pops, that's Poldark, that's Last of the Summer Wine. Everyone would just mill around. I remember Warren Clark once was playing Hunchback of Notre Dame. And uh, because he didn't have his pass, you know, I'm Warren Clark. He said, we don't allow groups in here. I'm not a group, I'm Warren Clark. They wouldn't allow him in because he hadn't got his pass. Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> I always imagine the, the canteen looking quite colourful. Yes, oh, yes, yes, it was. Yeah. And, and the, the myth of the commissionaires on the gate thinking that they owned the company. You're not coming in here if you don't have a car parking pass. It was all true. Yeah. But, it was a fantastic but very few of the actors yeah. or anybody else connected with them, like you, uh, doing anything like that couldn't get a parking place, it was all for the, uh, the high-ups. That's right. The, um, <laughs> so there quite a lot of socialism went on at that time. <laughs> you also had, if you went at the club of an evening, you would see, right, well, that's the producer of comedy, that's the producer of drama. If you wanted to get a part or get your next show, buy him a pint. Because at least you'd find out what was coming up. It was a really nice creative, collaborative little thing. So yeah, you, you are. Whereas in the freelance world, we're all in our own little yeah. boxes, separated out, you know. Was it, was it a necessary change, or do you think the BBC could have survived in that form if, if someone had the will to keep it going? I think way? somebody needed to fight a lot harder for saying, no, the BBC is fine as it is, and I don't right. think there was an appetite to do that. Right. It's a little like the splitting up of the BBC that, okay, we're going to sell off Television Centre and we're going to create studios in Salford and Rothlock. And we did have that anyway. There was a BBC Wales, there was a BBC Scotland, there was a BBC Manchester. So I think you could quite easily have argued, no, the reason that Television Centre is based in London is because that's where politics shows obviously need politicians. If you've got bands or film or you've got people centred there, yes, it might have been a bit London-centric, but now we've got something where there's practically nothing made here. It's all made in Rothlock and Cardiff, or it's all made in Salford. It's all, yeah. So, no, I mean, I think you could have argued for the BBC staying roughly as it was, and I think the closure of Television Centre, I think, was, was a big blow. Yeah. 
yeah. a mistake. Yeah, it was. It is iconic. Yeah, mm. and now it's going to be flat, right? I yeah. Think. yeah, and so have House Club, and you know, I think there's still going to be studios there. Right. But, yes. Um, Okay. No, it was a lovely place to work and a lovely place to train. Yeah. As a 20-year-old coming into the BBC, I was trained by the best in the world. Yeah. And you are now presumably training the next well, generation? No. Or is there nobody coming into your business? It's not that nobody wants to come into the business. It's that my company is effectively just me. Right. Um, and if I'm not busy... Um, I close back down again until yeah. the next job comes along. So there isn't that time to train people up in, in stuff. I haven't got time or money to say to somebody, right, we'll trail you for a couple of weeks yeah. and then put you into a job. You need to arrive you know, on the game straight away. Yeah. So, yeah, the loss of the BBC is a loss of a training ground. And, wh and so where are those people training now? They're having to go into companies that do exist out there. There are a number of big effects companies that do a lot of commercials and stuff like that, a lot of exhibition work, and assume that they get trained up that way or on big films that have got the budget to take on permanent trainees. Is there any sort of self-training going on? The people say a CG. Yeah, a lot of people self-train. It's plenty. I mean, compared to when I was growing up doing effects work, there's so much stuff like DVD extras and yeah. books and magazines and online resources that just weren't there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot easier to find out about the stuff. Michael, I wanted to ask you, the fact, the fact that you, you are multi-talented, so you do your model, model work, but you also do your writing as well, do you think balancing the two up actually helps you on, yeah. on either side with the creative process? Well, it helps on a number of levels. It helps by thinking through the process of a writer. But um, it, it's a little like um, when, whenever I speak to actors, it's sort of like, well, yes, I'd love to be a full-time actor, but in fact there's not enough work around, so what I do is a part-time job as well, whether that's photographer or writer or director. I think the same is true in the freelance effects world. It's sort of like when the effects work dries up, it's great that I can go to Big Finish or BBC Books or Penguin. I'm free. I've got a slot in my schedule. Have you got anything coming up? And I'll do a bit of writing. What it doesn't allow me to do is just take on writing willy-nilly. If they come to me and I'm busy, I have to go, I'm very sorry, I'm not going to be able to do it in that deadline. Mm. Um, but it's nice to have a second string to my bow, and it certainly helped me over the last couple of years. Plus, it's been great fun. I mean, the, the stuff I've written for Big Finish has been lovely. They're a great company to work for, you know. They're good for writers. It's, it's They're good, it's very, good for, very good, good for, for actors, actors as well. Yeah. I mean, the number of people that get employed now on a month-by-month -month basis by Big Finish is extraordinary. And the food there is... Up. And, <laughs> and the food is extraordinary. It's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but you, you just brought it up, that they well, have these lunches. Yes, because <laughs> the, the second time I was offered something, I, I forget who it was, one of the, one of the producer writers rang me up. And I said, yes, I'm, I'm not just accepting because of the food. <laughs> because the scripts are, are splendid. They, they are excellent, and they know what they're doing. They're professionals. You get there and... And it doesn't go over the time, and they know what they know exactly what they're doing. I think they and they don't just do Doctor Who; they do well, yeah. Sherlock Holmes and all those other get the most amazing people: Derek Jacobi, David Warner's. Because I've just worked with Colin Baker, I've just written my first story for Colin, um, and Jamie Anderson was my director. And uh, Jamie, I just worked for Jamie Anderson as Jerry's, in Jerry's, Jerry's son. Jerry's yeah. son. I didn't realise he was directing. Yeah, he's directing for Big Finish, and I just worked with him on the Firestorm project. Which of course. Is, oh, yeah. Because um, I, I, but I backed that Kickstarter. Yeah, well, How's it going? Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Okay. Of course. That. But as a result, I'm now chatting to Jamie about. 
you know, the scripts that he's directing for me. And I said, yeah. I'd love to have, um, I wrote the part for John Savadent and wow. um, Olivia Hallinan. Right. And I turn up in the studio, and who do we have sitting there? <laughs> John Savadent and Olivia Hallinan. So I, I, fantastic. I got the two actors that I wrote yeah. the parts for sitting yeah. in the green room. And yeah. it's like, well, and James said, yep, surprise. I asked, they said yes. <laughs> Um, so it's lovely. So somebody, because uh, a huge fan of John Savage's work, yeah. particularly the stuff he's done with Blake Seven and things, and he'd never been in a Doctor Who. Well, I tell a lie. He's in one episode with Peter Davison. He's in like five minutes, five and then he minutes, dies. And then he dies. Yes. But he's a great actor, yeah. and as a result, I got exactly what I wanted from that performance. Fantastic. Talking of Jamie Anderson, obviously, his father was a, a pioneer in your. In yes. your field, I'm presuming that was an inspiration. Oh yeah, I mean, Thunderbirds and Joe Ninety, Stingray, Captain Scarlet. You can't can't be my age, in effect, and not watch that. They're him and Ray Harryhausen, those are the two yeah. that you grew up watching. I met I met Jerry on uh, when I, I did one episode of UFO and the peculiar. Oh, was the horse? I did. Horse rider, yes. No, but I was interviewed. They've done a great big journal about it now. Yeah. It's just come out. I was interviewed and. They were asking me things that happened. It was before I did a, a big film. Yeah. It was 1969, 70. But I still know Susan... Uh, Susan James. Susan James, because I know Jimmy Boland very well, her yeah. husband. And it's strange because I still go to places and I'm still signing things. And, and uh, I thought, my God, I didn't look... I was bad looking in there. <laughs> thank God I didn't think it at the time. But <laughs> Very long because you get kidnapped by the aliens very very early on. That's right. And I then do a lot of horse riding. Yes. <laughs> and then they find you in a thing at the end. Yeah. You, you, you want to be able to survive. I, got to, I loved. I loved Ed Bishop. Did you know Ed? Never met him. Oh, he's a lovely man. It was at the time when we were all socialists and we were going to revolutionise us. But we both got disillusioned. I liked Ed a lot. But it's amazing, you watch something like UFO, and it's set in the future, and yes. the future is 1980. Yes. Yeah. And here we are in 2016. I know, <laughs> I know. So even 2001, so, you know, at the time that that came out, in what, 68, 69? Mm -hmm. That's the future. But it's yeah. like you were talking about those great producers. Jerry, he was hands-on, but he wasn't, a, he wasn't a, a dictator. But you knew what you were doing with him, yes. and you yes. controlled it. And he, 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 if you're unprofessional, that was it. You, you'd had it. But he was one of those, like David Croft and the BBC and places like that. They had some marvellous producers at that time who. It wasn't committees. Yeah. And I it think was his I, too many committees going on. Why don't we do the suits saying, why don't we do this? And we said, ooh, I made a mistake. Here. One person will go, that's what I want, bang. Yeah, and do it. And either right or right wrong. Right or wrong, yeah. Because John Nathan Turner on Doctor Who, I didn't always agree with John's creative decisions as a producer. Yeah. But he's the producer, and yeah. he would say, that's what I want. Yeah. yeah. No, oh, let's, let's see it and then I'll decide. Bang, that's what yeah. I want. Well, it's like when Bill Gates came over here last year, and he doesn't talk about politics. He said he wasn't going to talk about politics. But he said, all right, I'll just say this. You've got, you've got parties here, and you, you make decisions. He said, we've got a Congress, Republicans, and, and you make decisions in this country, either right or wrong, but at least you make decisions. <laughs> in America, they're so busy fighting each other, we never get anything done. That's the last I'm going to say on that. And that's all he said, which is true. Mm -hmm. yeah. But also, I think, in the old days, 
within the BBC system, I'm going to go back to that, you didn't become a producer just by going in, bang, I'm a producer. You no. started as a runner and a floor yeah. manager and a location manager yeah. and a production manager, and you worked your way up. And then it was like you either go into directing or producing. Yeah. These days, it seems that you can get in at a quite high level as a yeah. producer without that. And I think you lack the ability of everybody else's jobs that you learn when you're an AFM. Yes. Yes. David Lean started out on the cutting room floor yes. and editing and things like that. Yes. That's why he was such a marvellous filmmaker, because he knew all about where to cut things and edit them. Well, when I worked on Dalek with Chris Eccleston, um, Joe Ahern was the director, and Joe used to be an editor. And somebody in the middle of a sequence, uh, it was Chris, he, he fluffed a line in a take, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, um, I fluffed in the middle of that. And Joe went, uh, actually, I'm cutting to the close-up on that line so it doesn't matter, so that takes fine. Bang, move on. We yeah. were half a day ahead at the end of day one. <laughs> <laughs> Which, when you hear stories about the earlier stuff, they were well behind. So I suppose to have someone like him come in and, and know what needed to be done. Extraordinary director. Yeah. I've never yeah. worked with anyone quite like him because his vision is there in yes. his head. Yeah. And he knew absolutely... He'd already he already cut the show cut it in his head, in his head. Yeah. and it helped enormously. Yeah, because they say that about Hitchcock, don't they? Where, that he would he would just shoot what he needed, and it meant that the editors didn't really have any control over what the final film was. Yeah. So for someone like like that to be working in TV, where you have got these timescales, it must be. Well, if you know exactly yeah. what you want, what you want yeah. editing wise, you do. Whereas a lot of directors will have 20 or 30 takes and think, oh, I'll choose that and I'll choose that, instead of knowing what they want yeah. to begin with. Yeah. Do you find it easier to work with a director who knows what they want? Because then you can very easily figure out whether you're giving it to them or not. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I mean, I've worked with... Uh, Laurence Olivier, was, was in the, I only worked with him on stage. I worked with him on television and film, but Laurence Olivier was, he'd just tell you, learn the lines as quickly as possible. Now, a lot of actors like to learn the lines right to the end, and then they've still got the book, and then the director will say, oh, weren't they marvellous when it came? And I think, well, they wasted everybody's time up to now. Some actors do have problems, memory-wise, but some just... Alec Guinness, for instance, on Tinker Taylor. Three of us got together, we said, listen, we've got to learn this as soon as possible. He learned it. He'd learnt those six hours virtually, weeks and weeks beforehand, so we, we were wasting his time by not learning it as soon as possible. Mm. Some actors wouldn't agree with that, but I think you've got to learn the lines, because they should be there anyway. And then the director can, whereas if somebody's still got a book, you know, and you've got two days to go... Uh, You've had it. Mm. I mean, Alec Guinness must have learned Star Wars in about a day. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's stage actors thing is that you learn all the you learn the, you you learn all that. There are other directors who will do uh, loads of takes, and you've just got to accept the fact that you think, well, they want something else from this. Well, I, I mean, I remember I, I worked. I was in a drama, amateur drama, in Nottingham with Ken Loach. I don't know whether you ever remember. He was slightly mad in some ways and quite socialist but he he did one episode of um, um, oh cop series that went forever Z-Cop Ken had done one of those shots like Eisenstein above a table 
and then shot to the class. He only did one. <laughs> he was doing all these. He read a book on Eisenstein, and he thought, well, they want to see the people's faces, so you sort of shot through a glass, and it was very clever artistic, but they didn't want that. Ken's gone to other things now. I worked on a show very early on in my career, and we were on location, and very young, very new director, and it was like, okay, well, we'll do a master shot, we'll do a close-up, and well, I should get a shot from over here, and maybe I need a shot from over here, and it, it just went on for hours, and eventually the cameraman said, shall I get a lather and get a shot at the top of his head as well? And she was like, oh, yes, if you think that's going to be useful. And it's like, you have to decide that you've got it. You have to have yeah. a vision. Yeah. yeah. Which, I suppose, with, with Doctor Who in studio, as it was being cut live, that was oh, that the, was how it was done. The, the job of the vision mixer, it's yeah. an extraordinary thing. Multiped cameras rehearsed during the day, mixing the images live as the director's calling it to camera two being positioned now right close. It's a lost art. It's well, a lost well, art. But when you think nowadays, you can change the colour of a, of, a, of, a, of a chair or something. Yeah. With what do they call it, Leonardo or something. And then you've got other things, you can change the colour of a chair from yeah. looking drab to looking like mahogany. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, that's technology nowadays. And it is the cliche, but it was true. At 10pm, if you had not finished, they the sparks turned the lights out. And you they haven't. packed up in, 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 if it was tea time, yeah. because the brothers. <laughs> yeah, and we're going. Bang. <laughs> and if you hadn't got your shot, you didn't get your shot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there wasn't there wasn't time to pick it up. Pick it up later. I well, what happened is that you would. It's like you know, okay, we have we missed that shot. We're gonna have to pick it up. But it might be like you know, for the next studio block, which means rehiring. The actors, actors building that bit of set again. So the pressure on the directors and the floor managers and the, the well, cast. And classically for the actors, the amount of times, and not just me but other people, you get to work, they've done all the shots and they've done all the speeches and then they have to, at the end, they have to do the real thing. Sorry. And then it's round about 5.30 and then they've got half an hour. And then it's panic. <laughs> and the same is true of the effects. If you're a Usually. director who was, you know, understandably, I need to get my dialogue and my action, but we also need the spacecraft taking off. Well, we'll leave that to the end. At five to ten, right effects, uh, we'll do the shot, the spacecraft taking off now. That's why it looks ropey, because it's like, uh, we're going to try it at the first take. Yeah, that'll do, cut. So quite no, often stuff went out on the sheet. Oh, it's horribly painful because you then end up with people going, well, the effects in the show are rubbish. And you go, well, no, the effects in the show are very innovative and everyone's trying their best. We didn't have time to do what we wanted to do. I mean, one of my, the worst things I ever came across was Greatest Show in the Galaxy, where one of the shots that's not in the show is the collapse of the God's Arena. Yeah. You see it in close-up, but there was a huge model of like a Roman amphitheatre made, and it was being shot on VT. So it was set up all through the day by one guy, he spent four hours setting it up. They went, right, turn over, a guy hit the button, they collapsed the thing, cut, he hit the button again. When we played it back, he had four hours on tape of the guy setting it up, had accidentally hit stop when it collapsed, and then hit play again at the end of it. Mm. So the bit we didn't have was the collapse of the... the oh, and it no. was a one-off. Yeah. My so that, God. That, so that was never... It's, so you saw it 
apart you saw from it, the you effect. You saw it happen, but none of us ever will. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing that you're just, unfortunately, the pressure is forcing those sort of mistakes on you. Mm. No, it's still tough, but you've got modern cameras, you're shooting single camera. I don't know, do you get any rehearsal time on a modern TV thing? No, not so at all. So it's effectively rehearsed When I did, I did Emmerdale about six, seven years ago, and I had quite a lot of speeches that I used to get with the girl who was playing my daughter the night before wow. have a drink or two or not too much and go through it and then right. you'd have you'd just yeah. have a rehearsal and then you'd have the camera rehearsal now that well, the power game two weeks rehearsals it, yeah. but I wish we did have more rehearsal I mean they're on the knees sometimes in those soaps and yeah. I don't know how they can get it together but you don't have time to think oh what shall I do this and that. there isn't time you've just got to that's it yeah. and you're on Mm. And you can't analyse it yourself at all. I don't, I, it doesn't help for method actors. I'm not a method actor, but it wouldn't help for method actors. What, what's my motivation? Oh, salary or, or whatever it is. My favourite method actor story, it's a Hitchcock one. He was a great use, um, user of map paintings. Um, and in some cases, I mean, some of his films are extraordinary in terms of how much of the frame is painted. Yeah. And I think it was James Stewart goes... What's my motivation for walking from this point to this point in a straight line? And Hitchcock said, because if you don't, you'll vanish behind the map painting. <laughs> <laughs> right. And on that note... We wrap, yes, we yeah. wrap up, because uh, Hooverville is about to end. I mean, it's been, it's been such a great day. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank no, you for your time. It's been a lovely day. It's been a lovely day, and you contributed immensely to it. Oh. <laughs> thank, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.